welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. You sure are. <laughs> I'm David Bax. And you haven't, you've, uh, you, you, the, the, the patrons got, uh, uh, got your actual first return to the show, right. uh, just, uh, uh, less than a week ago, but this is your return to the show after your, your, your mic drop announcement, uh, of, uh, of your, uh, uh, this, adopted twins this is a return this is uh this is a special occasion uh, i will be probably gone for two more weeks and then i think i'm then i think i'm back for good oh okay um, we hadn't uh, so. i knew you were gone next week um right uh, i didn't don't think we had it might be next week or out. the week after i don't remember I, um, I need to look at the math um okay but uh but no it's david it's a special occasion it's a special yes, day it, i think it, it is. Um, and that's, uh, and before we get into anything else, I want to tell you the special day is brought to you by tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Tyler and I use them each and every day of our lives today. Uh, I was walking around the, the park listening to a new single by a London band called Pinch, but with a Y. Like Thomas Pinchon's last name, but without the O N, P Y N C H. Good stuff. Good, uh, uh, good rock music. Sounded rocking on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds. They're available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code Pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code Pretension. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Tyler? Yes. Let's get into it, shall we? Okay. You, uh, uh, you Tyler, but more, more specifically, you, the listener, might have noticed, if you're looking down at your, uh, your MP3 player, your Zune, um, whatever uh, you're using uh, in Perhaps the year somebody, uh, 2006. somebody burned a CD for you and <laughs> yeah. to you. Yeah. Um, uh, you're looking down at this, at this device, uh, and you're seeing the, na- the, the number of the episode. It's always the first thing uh, that I put in the episode description is the number of the episode. Now, because of the way r19 works often the number appears twice in a row but not going to get me to change my ways i am a creature of habit so i was gonna now, i felt um, like we needed to have an uh an off mic meeting about that because yeah you know it's it looks yeah. weird uh, it does look weird but um uh it's it would be weird to me to suddenly change the way i do things uh it's not who i am i am uh yeah i'm uh wait who's the who's the uh backwards looking conservative on the podcast is it, uh, apparently it's me i know i'm <laughs> i i'm i'm go with mr go with the flow change yeah. with the times that's what i say no so you may have noticed the number of the episode is 710 which is uh, uh a number um like many numbers but it's uh uh special because it ends in a zero and yet is not evenly divisible by 50 and therefore this is a profile episode um and we're doing as we have uh, in, in the past couple of years we just turned these profile episodes into this is a sort of in memoriam a tribute mm-hmm. episode and i make special uh, um 
note of that because we started doing that uh when we profiled the uh two early departed johan johansson yeah with the same guest we have today so he not only is he uh battleship retentions resident musicologist he is also the inspiration for what these profile episodes uh or at least the reason uh, for what these profile episodes have become please welcome back to the program after too long of an absence west anthony so I only come back when somebody dies. Is that apparently, it? Apparently, apparently, you're the, you're the one who uh, uh, you suggested doing a pro. I think it was your suggestion to do the Johan Johansson yeah. uh, episode as a profile, and that uh, I liked it so much that uh, I did change my ways for once. And now uh, the profiles are and now we are locked into that. Uh, yeah, and you know, Wes, there's kind of a mournful tone when you count when you come on that I appreciate. But I'm actually also, that's that's very different it's it's actually not true at all it's usually very boisterous and Sorry, delightful tyler to address what you said about we're locked into that i've also said that i think we can you and i could still do episodes on a filmmaker who is living and just not have it take the profile sure. uh what's what i'm looking for structure or whatever moniker um yeah moniker that's not the word i'm looking for there's a word oh, i'm okay. looking for and i can't uh think of think of what it is format, uh, format is the word i'm looking for yes um anyway that's uh we'll see yeah down the line when we do uh some episode on you know i don't know uh colin trevorrow uh <laughs> who's still alive yeah that's that's <laughs> the first place my mind would have gone uh, <laughs> you think about it we think about working filmmakers today sure working in some definition not necessarily every definition because <laughs> i don't know how well his movies work but uh anyway Anyway, West, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. It's always great to be here, especially here, here. <laughs> I, I do know how much you hate my house, uh, you know, and my cats. Uh, oh, it's, uh, you know, we're, we're all locked down still. And, uh, you know, I've been working from home for the past several months. And as you can see, I've gone seven months without a haircut. Uh, Looks and, great to me in my. Opinion. I, yeah, I think I it's think a good look. Great. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, we'll see how much further it gets because you know I'm I'm I still have no plans to return to the barber anytime soon. Yeah. But um, you look yeah. increasingly like another friend of Battleship Retention, Mark Edward Hoyk. Oh really? <laughs> That's <laughs> like, true. Yeah. The the yeah. sort of uh, uh, long waves and the uh, you got like a gray streak there. That's uh, yeah. Yeah. a very yeah. You look like the Hoyk. <laughs> Does yeah, he the, go by the Hoik or we think that's his Twitter handle, isn't it? Okay, yeah. good, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Now that, now that I think of it, the last time I saw him, yeah, you're right. His, his hair does kind of look like what mine is turning into now. Yeah. You keep, you keep at it. You'll get there. <laughs> uh, so here uh, we're here. We're all having a good time and everything. Uh, I mean, not being locked down, but I mean, uh, uh, talking to one another, but we are here to uh, pay tribute to someone who uh, passed away somewhat uh, recently. And uh, again, if you've, you might have looked down at your Zoom and only seen the number and not the name of the episode. In case you're curious, we will be profiling the career of Ennio Morricone, who is uh, uh, or was uh, not only a great composer, but sort of uh, he's he's one of the first film composers that I could name. Uh, he, he's he's on that short list of 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 comp composers who are famous for composing movie music. Do you know what I mean? Mm, yes. Yes. He's like a, like a John Williams and maybe John Barry. I'm not sure who else is, uh, 
is is on that list of uh of household names as far as uh, film composers go but he's certainly one of them yeah but he is also he's different from almost all of those composers that you can think of because he's not american you know, he's he's and not only is he Italian, but I mean, he he never came here. I mean, to live. I mean, he's he's come to America quite often for purposes of work, but he never moved here to be closer to Hollywood. And that might have actually, you know, affected his career in in some ways. But in terms it only but really only in terms, I think, of uh, in terms of his exposure to American audiences and his opportunities f- to work in American films. Yeah. And yet, even in spite of that, you know, his his stature only ever really grew with every passing year. Yeah. And God knows, I mean, there are plenty of American directors that were eager to work with him um, and and really champion his work, uh, you know, whether it be like a Quentin Tarantino or a Clint Clint Eastwood or whatever, just who really uh, saw what he was able to do. And, you know, usually when we, when we do these profiles, we kind of start with a, a larger statement, uh, about the, about the person. And then we like delve into things. And so, you know, I was, uh, thinking about, uh, Ennio Morricone, uh, recently, cause I was, um, sort of anticipating this. I rewatched, um, Hateful Eight and there's just something when I think about movie music, and this is something that I'll repeat, uh, when we, when we, you know, get a little bit further down the line, when I think of, of movie music, especially these days, it tends to be, it's fine. It does the job. It, 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 it heightens the emotion, whatever it is, but I feel like it's usually meant to just, it it, almost like it's apologizing for even being there. It's just like, it's like, Hey, sorry guys, I'm just doing my job, but don't, don't pay any, don't, don't mind me. But I think Morricone is the guy who's just like, no, fuck you. I'm here. My music is here. And it's, and it is, it has a part to play here. Uh, and so like, and it's why like his, his, his music is not passive, whether it be like big and boisterous or it, it's something a little bit quieter and more lovely. Like it is there and it's yeah. not going to be ignored. And I don't mean to say that he's being obnoxious about it, but I, I do wonder if there's, if that's sort of his Italians, an Italian sensibility, as opposed to like an American or like a British composer who granted there are plenty of like big scores out there for all different kinds of movies. But I do feel like when it's him, like he's just, he, he has something big to contribute. And I think that's why certain directors really want to, you know, really wanted to use him, uh, especially directors who dealt in sort of bigger concepts or bigger tones like a Tarantino or a John Carpenter or something like that. I think the uh, what you're saying about him not not fading into the background. I think the if I had to sum up his uh, if I had to sum up Ennio Morricone as a composer in one word, the word that I kept coming back to while like watching movies in pre- preparation for this and listening to music in preparation for this episode is idiosyncratic. Sure. Um, <laughs> that uh, as much as like someone like a John Williams or a John Barry could be very memorable and also be very distinct, like that's clearly a John Williams type thing. They're still. Uh, uh, you know they're 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 going for what the the movie's going for do you know what i mean like 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 you're saying there uh there's the cinematic sweep and there's the pathos of their music whereas any morricone often wasn't afraid to be a little weird um yeah. uh, and sometimes i think to uh, 
not always to the best uh, uh, results. There are some. There's at least one movie that uh, we're not, we won't be planning any selections from, but that I that I think the music is kind of lame. Uh, that we'll get to later. But um, uh, West, any uh, uh, opening thoughts? Yeah. Well, I think that. Uh... What you were saying, Tyler, about uh, you know, about the quality of his music, I think it actually it, it might have something to do with him being Italian. I mean, certainly, there's a, a great tradition of uh, you know Italian composers who have you know, composed uh, very uh, uh, boisterous and and memorable and uh, and uh, operatic music. And not, not I mean, there's operas for yeah. starters, <laughs> right. um, but uh, but also you know I think it also may have something to do with what I'd said earlier about him not coming to america to work because i think that there's there's a lot of composers in hollywood working here in hollywood today and over the years who i think they just sort of get a little brow beaten by the system you know because everything is being focus grouped and everything is being you know tested for you know, for marketing purposes and you know we need this and we need that and we need the other and very often uh i find that in a lot of film scores you sort of feel like it's the the movie is kind of kind of dragging the music along with it whereas you're right morricone is very much somebody you can point to several scenes in several movies and we'll get to a couple of them where morricone is leading the movie and he is very unabashed about that and i think again because of his lack of exposure to american filmmaking uh, I think might have had uh, really a, a positive impact in that regard because he doesn't play by those rules. He doesn't have any need to to compose uh, wallpaper or linoleum, as uh, Bernard Herrmann once put it, you know. And that was another guy who, you know, boy, I mean, you know, as we've discussed before on this show that, you know, Bernard Herrmann was the guy who was more than happy to yell at any Hollywood filmmaker who dared to, to you know, tamper with any of his music. You know, yeah. and that's, you know, that's what led to them, him falling out with Alfred Hitchcock for crying out loud. So I think that, yeah, his his Italianness may have a part to, to play in, in the quality of his music, but also I think that maybe the his uh, lack of exposure to uh to the the hollywood uh, playbook might also have uh, uh maybe something to take into consideration as to the the quality of his music and why so much of it is so memorable to people when i when i did mention his italianness i don't mean to say that like you know italians who are just loud and boisterous <laughs> it's not so much that it's, it is more like what you're saying which is that he was a a composer rooted firmly in his own country like as opposed to like coming over to hollywood and then just being a part of hollywood like hollywood would go to him you know i yeah. can't think I, you know what in fact i can't think of like a better summation of him as an artist that like hollywood would go to him the directors would go to him the movies would go to him uh as opposed to so often with composers uh even even the ones that i love who are just like okay what tone are you trying to strike how can i help do that as opposed to the director saying i want to strike a tone you do that and i will work around it you know and uh and i feel like yeah it's it's why i think his music is often so memorable is because it's it is not linoleum. It's not wallpaper. And, and I, I think of him very much in the same way as I think of Bernard Herrmann. His music was not passive either. Um, even when it was like, even for something like Citizen Kane, which is not a big genre movie, but even then, like it's, 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 it, there's a, a grand quality to it that, uh, that can't be ignored or forgotten. 
Well, let's but, um, uh, let's jump into the chronology. Yeah. Like I said, we're not going to cover uh, everything. There's there, there's way too much. We have we have uh, among the three of us, we have picked uh, twelve selections. Um, by which I mean, West picked nine. Tyler picked two and I picked one. Um, I'm excited although, to pick one, honestly. Like, uh, yeah. uh, I don't say that in a joking way. Like it's fun to see, be, jump in and be a part of it. Um, yeah. Normally I, uh, in, in the passenger seat when we do the, the, the composer type episodes, because I just have never felt very comfortable uh, talking about music. I don't uh, think I know enough of it, but um, uh, we'll go, we'll go chronologically. Like I said, we're not going to get to, to uh, everything, but I do want to point out that uh, he's, he's best known obviously for uh, the Westerns that he scored for Sergio Leone and eventually for uh, one for Quentin Tarantino uh, as well. Um, and certainly if, you know, the, maybe the most famous single piece of music uh uh you know is the the um the man with no name uh uh what's it called west that i'm thinking of the uh it's really just the the theme from the good the bad and the ugly is probably the one that you're thinking of yes which yes which which none of us picked uh yeah because you picked the other one that uh uh from uh good the bad and the ugly which we'll get to uh in a minute but um but he also he he worked in lots of other uh modes too some of which we'll get into um but uh his his cv starts in the early 60s the earliest ones i've seen are from 64 uh that's before the revolution and a fistful of dollars uh which i just point out because right from the beginning he was uh working in uh, before the revolution is sort of a uh an italian version of a french new wave uh movie um and fistful dollars is of course the uh, uh spaghetti western and so he's he's working uh all the way across uh very different uh modes and genres right from the beginning of of his career um the first clip though that we're going to play uh is from 1966 uh, unless I'm reading this wrong and it's from the battle of Algiers. Uh, am I right? Is that the first one? Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so let's hear some of that now and then we'll talk about it. Does that sound good? Sure. Thank you. 
All right. West, your thoughts. Uh, it's this particular piece is the piece that uh, kind of opens the film. It plays over the opening credits. And uh, I mean, I don't know if, if any of you have seen the battle of Algiers, but uh, yeah. it's, it's one of my favorites. Um, I happen to really enjoy uh, political films and the, the Italians were just, you know, churning them out in the 60s and 70s it's it's kind of remarkable how many uh really great political films came out of it we'll be you know talking about another one of them later on um but uh it's it's really remarkable and the music for the film is credited to morricone and the film's director Gio pontecorvo but uh according to morricone uh pontecorvo just sort of came up with like a like a four or five note melody and morricone just kind of ran with it and then pontecorvo was extended a credit for that melody that he came up with uh that's not what the the, the piece that we heard um but it's uh it's really i i just love the uh the, the quality of it because it's you know it's playing under a scene of uh you know military people rushing into a building and it it's, it sounds very martial but at the same time there's a sort of a weird atonal quality to it that so that really kind of puts you on edge it lets you know that something's going on here that's not necessarily right and these are not necessarily the people that we should be rooting for so that's one of the things that i loved about that that piece all right, I'm fine to it's because we have we have a lot to to get to. Um, I'm not, I don't really feel like David. I don't feel super qualified, or frankly, uh, I'm just so damn tired all the time now. That uh, <laughs> either I my instinct is to say nothing or go on talking way longer than I have anything to actually say. So uh, okay. so I'm fine to just move on to. Uh, uh, our next one is the good, the bad, and the ugly. Also from 1966. Yeah. Um, and uh, yes, no, no, you're not about to hear an entire Metallica concert. You're just <laughs> going to hear the ecstasy of gold. Ah.
the, that that was, uh, the uh, if you're a uh, Metallica fan who has listened to a lot of their live concerts, that's their like entrance music. When they did the uh, the album with the San Francisco Philharmonic, they started with Ecstasy of Gold. So no, throughout, a, a throughout their whole career, I, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they they play it before every concert. Yeah, that's that's their thing. And my understanding, I've never seen the Ramones live, but my understanding is that, that they did the same thing. Oh, um, I didn't know so that. yeah, that's that's what I read. I, I like I said, I've never seen uh, a Ramones concert. I've seen a Metallica concert. Uh, but oh, yeah, um, that's, uh, it's a great piece of music. But it will I will always as much as much as I'd love the good and the bad. Okay, I'll always think of Metallica when I hear the Ecstasy of Gold. Fair enough, but. You know, if you've seen the movie that I mean, it's it's a truly remarkable moment because all, the only thing that you hear in that sequence is the music. And mm -hmm. Sergio Leone, he was uh, he was a, a brilliant filmmaker, but he was also smart enough to know what he had when he had Ennio Morricone working with him. And he was more than happy to just let Morricone take over, take the wheel, so to speak, and just sort of drive the, the movie emotionally. And it's it's maybe one of the greatest sequences in all of cinema. And a large part of it is because of the music, because Leone was smart enough to say i'm not going to do anything else we're not going to have any dialogue we're not going to have any sound effects we're just going to have this with the, the we've we've reached the goal that uh that the protagonists and antagonists uh, have been working towards all this time so let's just give them a moment uh before some of them die <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I show this this sequence in its entirety to my uh, my students and I do it uh, the week that we talk about cinematography because of the way that like, you know, uh, wide shot, medium shot, close up, extreme close up, like the way that that sort of mimics how a gunfighter probably does sort of survey where they are and and size up their opponent. But obviously the sequence could be used just as much to talk about editing. Uh, and uh, and music, um, because yeah, it's when you think about it, it's it's just three guys, you know, and they're standing far apart. And of course, it's big stakes for them. But this is not Lawrence of Arabia or anything like that. These are just three guys uh, standing and looking at each other. And yet it has such this it just has this I mean, operatic, you know, this epic quality to it. Because, the, because, you know, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is a long-ish movie, I would say. And we, this is what we've been building to. And so why shouldn't it be this, have this huge build? And you're just like, here we go. This is everything we've been waiting for. Uh, and there's the fact that, like, you know, a gunfight is... <laughs> I mean, a gun a gunfight isn't very long it's one of my favorite moments from that movie appaloosa uh where these uh, a group of people uh, are shooting guns at each other and it's all done in like 15 seconds and then one guy's like he goes that didn't take very long he goes well yeah everyone could shoot um <laughs> and uh and so that's kind of how i feel here so when the when the fight itself is going to be over in like five to seven seconds then you're going to need a lot of buildup uh even in the moment and certainly this this bit of music does build that up for me until it feels like one of the biggest moments in cinema history. And I think the music is a big part of that. Maybe the part of that. All right. Anything else to, to say West about uh, the exercise uh, of gold? Oh no, no, let's, let's keep rolling. Well, yeah, then, uh, <laughs> then, then we're, we're jumping ahead to 1968 and to a movie that I watched for the first time yesterday in preparation for this. And that's uh Pier Paolo Pasolini's Teorema. 
um, a a title that my smart TV's voice search function could not figure out what I was trying to say. <laughs> I had to enter it manually. Uh, uh, that it, uh, I, I tried doing it with the Italian accent, and then I tried doing it as American as possible. Tio Rima. No, none of it worked. I had to enter it manually. But uh, yeah, we're going to hear uh, in in this case um, an actual like song song right yep uh called fruscio di fogli verdi I chose this piece uh, primarily just to show everybody how versatile Morricone is. And I mean, and because really, if you've, you saw the movie, so, you know, you only hear the song for like 10 seconds and yes. it's coming out of somebody's radio. <laughs> yeah. And, and he didn't, he didn't compose much more music for, for the movie. Cause a lot of the movie uh, there's some music by uh, Mozart it was a Mozart Requiem that uh, Pasolini wanted. And then also uh, Pasolini made a lot of use of, uh, of a piece of jazz music, which at first I thought was Morricone. And I thought, oh, gosh, this guy is even even 
more versatile than I thought. But actually, that turned out to not be true. Uh, it was, it's a piece of music by a, a jazz musician uh, named Ted Curson called um, Tears for Dolphy. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a piece that was written after the death of his, uh, his friend, a fellow jazz musician named Eric Dolphy. Uh, it's one of two pieces of music with uh, that name check Dolphy. The other one is uh, is a piece by uh, Frank Zappa. But um, so yeah, I th- I thought that jazz piece, which I which I I do love, uh, I thought that was Morricone because there was no credit for it in the film. And then later on, I found out that it was something else. But then so but we have this song, and uh, it's and it's kind of a weird song. Uh, you know, whether or not you know the lyrics it just it just sounds kind of off in in a way but it also it has this really great sort of uh uh baroque psychedelic pop quality to it that was actually a thing that was going on a lot in the at that time in the late 60s you know you could hear that in a lot of pop music that was happening back then uh the best example that i can think of would be uh, arthur lee's band uh, love it was a big uh, popular band here in los angeles in the mid to late 60s uh i would highly recommend pe- people picking up an album by love uh called forever changes came out in november of 1967 um and it sounds a lot like a lot of what you're hearing uh with this song the way that uh you know it just is the, the baroque quality of it the way that it just sort of stops and starts like it, it's not something that people are going to be dancing to and, and you have this sort of a mysterious quality to it and the wind that comes in like halfway through it's it's a very uh odd and haunting song and it's it's kind of a shame that you know you only get to hear it for like 10 seconds in in this movie because yeah, it fits in very well with it because the overall the movie itself is also a very you know a, kind of a, a strange picture <laughs> was that was this the other italian political movie you were uh talking about because uh the movie is kind of uh uh, uh i guess a an attack on the uh bourgeoisie of uh, of italy at the time yeah although i was thinking of a, another one okay the one, actually the one that you picked as a matter of fact oh yes um, uh, but yeah. i mean that's but that's the thing there was like i said there's there's a lot of political cinema going on in, in italy at the time and yeah this one this is actually you know almost in, in some ways it's almost not as because it's not you know blatant and explicitly political political as uh, some of the other movies um but because i mean for those who haven't seen it really it's just you know uh terrence stamp plays a mysterious stranger who shows up at this uh, you know bourgeoisie house and he basically seduces everybody in the family mother father sister brother maid and then he leaves I, I and everybody it. goes nuts in one way or another yeah yeah <laughs> it reminded me of the 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 scenes of him uh uh I, I, I realized that um, Adam Wingard's movie, The The Guest, where Dan Stevens is, uh, pretends to be uh, uh, the friend of the late son of a family and warms their way into their uh, warms his way into their life. Uh, I was like, oh, Adam Wingard must have watched uh, Terrence. It's like the 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 same sort of vibe of of Terrence Stamp, just uh, just. Uh, charming literally charming the pants off of everyone in the family <laughs> there's also there's also a movie from 2006 called the king uh starring gael garcia bernal and uh, william hurt in which uh this this young man um whose biological father is is like this the pastor of this the, a well-respected pastor of a church uh but the, he doesn't i don't think he knows the father knows that but uh this young man like works his way into the the pastor's life and his family's life and basically just ruins everything for everybody um it's a very it's a wonderfully well-acted film but extremely depressing um but yeah uh 
Wes, I know that I know that uh, you'll you'll be sympathetic to this. Um, it's something I think about pretty regularly. Is just man, I feel so bad for composers. They have to do so much work, and the stuff that they are asked to do is for, for so little recognition in certain capacities. Like the idea of, hey, I need you to write a whole song. Here's the deal: we're going to hear for ten seconds if that, and then like. <laughs> Like, hey, Bernard Herrmann, we need you to write an entire opera. Here's the thing. It's going to be sung poorly. Like, it's just this constantly, this thing's like, you're going to need to put as much work into this as you would if we're if someone were going to listen to this in, in its entirety. But that's not going to happen. And uh, yeah, and you're actually, you may come away actually sounding uh, worse as a result. Um, or and, sometimes uh, they, don't use, it, uh, sometimes they don't all, use it at all. Because, you know, I like um, uh, Frank Ocean wrote a song for Django Unchained, right? that uh, mm. uh never like there's the john legend song and there's the rick ross song and Django and chain that are like new music but frank ocean also wrote one and tarantino was like i love the song i just couldn't find a way to make it work um it had sent and there's an ennio morricone song uh yes yes uh so let's let's move ahead we're gonna skip over one that i'm kind of kicking myself now uh because when earlier when i said idiosyncratic i should have picked something if we, if we could find it from a quiet place in the country which is uh uh, a, a weird little um, uh, uh, horror movie about a couple who uh, it starts off with them involving in uh, being involved in in uh, dom and dom sub uh, sex play and then gets weirder from there and the music kind of matches that I kind of wish in retrospect that I had picked some uh, and then also we'll skip over the great silence and uh, our next selection is from 1968's uh once upon a time in the our guest uh, <laughs> um sorry west sent an email uh in which he described the pieces coming from once upon a time in the me and i thought that was funny and wanted to make sure i got into the episode i always appreciate the wittiness of a west anthony email uh like yeah. he doesn't need to incorporate jokes it's just yeah. a, it's just like a functional email but he does and i appreciate the effort that he puts yeah it's in. just just for us yeah. um but let's hear a selection from once upon a time in the west
Now here again, there's uh, there's so much great music in this film yeah. that you could choose, and, and in fact, there was uh, there was a piece that I, I was considering for a long time, which is the scene where Claudia Cardinale steps off the train and, and arrives at the town, and you talk about a, a scene that where the music is leading the film. In this case, it's very literal because Morricone wrote some of this music before Sergio Leone had ever shot a frame of the film. And that particular piece of music that accompanies that scene with Claudia Cardinale, uh, Morricone had that written and recorded. Sergio Leone played it on the set and he timed the movement of the camera to, you know, to, to the music. So everything you see when, when the camera cranes up and he reveals the town and the music reaches this swelling crescendo and, uh, you know, you hear the, the voice of, uh, you know, the, the soprano uh, singing, which was a longtime associate of, uh, of Morricone's. Uh, I can't, I'm trying to remember her name and trying to look it up and I, I can't remember where it was. Oh, it was Edda Delorso. Uh, she sang on a lot. She sang on uh, the ecstasy of gold too, as a matter of fact. Um, and so all of that, all of the, 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 the camera movement, all the imagery that you see, it's all timed to the music, which was already written and pre-recorded. Uh, so uh, there's so much uh, uh, awesome stuff in that movie to recommend. But I chose the, the man with the harmonica scene because um, it's that music is also very uh, emotional. And again, it's also... Uh, it's it's got a very uh, hard and rough quality to it because they they really fuzzed out the electric guitar on that one yeah. and and it also plays to a moment that is almost 100% visual i mean i i yeah i think it is 100% visual i don't recall if there's any dialogue in that scene i don't think uh, i don't think there is i think it's like essentially a flashback and i don't think yeah any. there might be i think there is one line that henry fonda plays where he's like you know play for your brother or something right. like that yeah but i think that's but that's it. all and yeah. and then also really the 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 thing that one of the things I love most about that, the whole character and this whole thing with the harmonica is because Charles Bronson's character throughout the movie, you know, he's Jason Robards just calls him harmonica because he doesn't have a name, uh, you know, and, and his signature thing, apart from being able to shoot lots of people very rapidly is that he's got a harmonica that he plays, but he only plays three notes. You go through this entire movie that is almost three hours long. There's harmonica in it because every time the guy shows up, he's playing the damn thing. But you will never hear more than three notes on that harmonica in the entire picture. And the payoff, uh, man, I'm, I'm glad that you picked this. Although I will say that like the Cheyenne theme uh, has been in my head ever since I saw the film. It shows up pretty regularly because um, I, I do love it. So Cheyenne is the Jason Robards character, right? Like that's his yep. name. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and there's a playfulness to it. And just like an old, uh, you just get the impression that like, Oh yeah, this guy, it's hard to believe that he's sort of like a, like a full fledged character because there's just a, a sort of a comic relief to him. But yeah, the, the harmonica theme, like the, the, you wonder why it's so simple, especially with somebody like an Ennio Morricone who, who's there's, you know, his, his, is uh there's such complexity to his uh, orchestrations and, and his compositions and then you have this little three note thing and it's it's simple and it's menacing and then you're not and it's just like okay so i guess this is harmonica's theme that's interesting then you see what it is you see why and it and you're like this is so wonderful and horrible and it's one of those things where it's like i'm sure you know uh uh 
Oh my gosh. Why am I blanking on the name of the, of the director? Hang on. I'm only thinking more Coney. <laughs> Sergio Leone. Leone. Thank you. Okay. Uh, so he, uh, like he must've said like, Hey, here's the situation. I need you to come up with a theme that could conceivably, uh, be composed by, uh, a child blowing it, breathing in and out of a harmonica. Can you do that for me? Um, and, and still make it sound musical and memorable. And he does. And it's like, it's, you know, I've played harmonica. I'm pretty sure that it's simply breathing in and out wouldn't have gotten those notes, but I don't care because uh, it's, it just, it all works so well. It plays into the story so beautifully. I, I love it. I, it's such a wonderful choice uh, directorially and musically. Yeah. But also, I mean, you know, just the three notes, it's, it's pretty memorable, but then when you get to this scene and he brings in the whole orchestra and it's really also the, all of the other orchestration and, and, and melodies that he's done as well, particularly the, 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 the melody line that's played on the electric guitar. And it just, it just fits in with the three notes on the harmonica. Uh, they they complement each other in in such yeah. a, a wonderful way, so and then also you know since you mentioned uh, uh, the character of Cheyenne and and his particular theme, I'll I'll point out that the the whistling was done by a guy named Alessandro Alessandroni, who uh, did a lot of uh, whistling and other sort of uh, vocal effects for Morricone over the years. So that's another guy who's you know him and Etta Delorsoni. Uh, Delorso, uh, sorry, the, those two uh, vocally they were instrumental no pun intended uh in morricone's sound in the uh, in the 60s and and you know going on forward from there okay so uh now let's move ahead to a movie that i haven't seen and hopefully west will be able to uh explain why uh he he, he picked it um and hopefully also i've edited this so that what i just said makes sense um yes yeah, so peek behind the curtain i have heavily edited uh parts of this episode um due to my idiocy uh we're gonna hear a selection from 1969's machine gun mccain Okay. 
it means to feel you free when you know the world is yours. Okay, this is really kind of a, an Italian B picture with American actors, but uh, I love it because uh, I, I love B picture crime movies. Uh, Machine Gun McCain uh, stars uh, John Cassavetes as the title character, and uh, his friend uh, Peter Falk is in it, and his wife. Uh, now I'm blanking out her name. It was I know it's Gina uh, Jenna Rollins. Sorry, mm. uh, she's also in it, and it's just a just a great you know B crime movie that happens to be made by Italians who, and it's set in Las Vegas and yet somehow it doesn't feel like Las Vegas at all, probably because it's made by Italian filmmakers. And here again is another, just uh, another groovy theme song <laughs> that uh, I, I love it because the, the quality of the vocals, which is done by a British singer named Jackie Linton, who was sort of a poor man's Tom Jones. Um, and uh, I think he had a couple of chart hits in England in the uh, in in the late sixties, but, uh, but boy, he sells it. <laughs> you know, his his vocals are they're they're just uh, he's loaded for bear on this song, and I love the way that you know, the song starts out one way and then abruptly it sort of slows down into a ballad, and the the, the ballad and which it is in a way because I mean it's called in, in Italian the, the the English translation is the ballad of of Hank McCain uh, about this you know, criminal basically. And, and all the lyrics are about what a, a tough guy he is and how he, he's, you know, wouldn't take it from the man. And then he dies anyway, because what are you going to do? <laughs> but I just, I love the quality of the song. And also then you'll also notice though, that one thing that happened in, in the first half, not the, the slower half, but in the first half, you'll notice that, you know, there's like this little staccato bit on the piano that occurs like, you know, the beginning of uh, every verse, which, you know, you could say is a musical representation of a machine gun. Hmm. All right. Now, uh, Tyler, you forgetting Sergio Leone's name, West, you forgetting Gina Rowland's name. Are you guys just doing this to make me feel better about not being able to keep track of simple chronology, despite having the order of things <laughs> literally on my screen in front of me? No, I'm just getting old. Yeah, and I'm uh, I'm sleep deprived. So right. you know, so I don't have an excuse exactly, uh, except not being able to read. But anyway, what am I even referencing? I already cut it all out anyway. Uh, so we're going to move ahead to the one thing that I uh, that that I uh, picked um, that wasn't already covered. The, uh, there was one that West picked that I would have if, if he hadn't. But uh, we're going to move on to 1970s investigation of a citizen above suspicion so let's hear speaking of groovy themes uh west uh, as you were with machine gun kelly machine gun kelly uh mccain, McCain. <laughs> um uh, uh let's hear the theme from investigation of a citizen above suspicion
Okay, so uh, I'm very glad that I'm very glad that you added this, David, because I feel like it, it it adds a quirky, playful element that I really okay. appreciated. Well, that's I'm glad that you you couldn't have given me a better intro to what I wanted to say because I'm uh, uh, based on on West's description of this as a political film. I'm, I'm uh, assuming he's seen this movie. Yeah, I'm assuming Tyler that you have not. I have not, and I'm assuming some of our listeners have not. So, given that. Like I said, that 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 piece of music shows up multiple times in the in the movies, but in the movie, but it's right there at the very beginning. So, given yes. that quirky, playful feel, let me describe what's actually happening in the scene, <laughs> <laughs> which is that a a man that uh, we will later find out is a police, uh, uh, high ranking police uh, administrator, is shown up at his mistress's house. We've surmised from their bit of conversation that they have a sort of sex game they like to play in which she plays different types of murder victims and she says so how are you going to kill me today and he says i'm going to slit your throat and then they start having sex and then he pulls out a razor and literally slits their throat and kills her all while while what you're just hearing <laughs> is playing it's investigation of a citizen above suspicion on paper sounds pretty heavy um it's actually uh uh it's a bit of a comedy or maybe more correctly described as a satire. It's a very um, black comedy. Yeah. Sounds um, like it. Uh, but this idea of this guy who basically commits a murder just, just essentially to prove that he can get away with it, whatever he wants uh, because of his position and his power and, uh, 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 and, and stuff um, is, I think a kind of a, a uh, anti-fascist uh, satire and um, watching it to, uh, today um, some of the way that he uh, talks about uh, his own uh, entitlement and privileges it rings so true with uh, the Donald Trump administration and, and the way that uh, he has just flouted uh, uh, not just regulations but actual laws um, uh, it's, a, it's a really uh, sharp political satire and it's this piece of music is very key because it lets you know from the beginning that despite what you're seeing, despite the fact that what you're seeing is pretty horrifying. Um, this movie is going to be kind of fun about that uh, in a way. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it definitely gets sort of less fun as it goes along. It's, yeah, I, like I said, I, I did consider it a very black comedy, but uh, a lot of the laughs were, you know, very, very bitter uh, mm -hmm. as, as it went on. You know, as you can, if you relate the film, which is you know, now 50 years old to, you know, what's going on today, uh, you know, like the, the whole monologue that the main character has when he's you know addressing all the uh the, the police uh staff in in this large meeting and some of the things that he has to say like you know repression is civilization holy uh -huh. shit but i mean <laughs> it's just you know when you can just take uh any every other scene in this movie and relate it to what police are like today here in america and you see how little things have changed but um yeah, Morricone's music, it's, it is very ironic, the, the, the way he sort of composes this odd little tango. And I think he very deliberately uses the, uh, the, the form of a tango because, you know, as they say, it takes two to do it. And this is sort of, you know, this, this guy basically is sort of playing an entire societal system. 
Mm-hmm. And and you just watch how he do, does it with and your jaw is just, you know, increasingly just laying on the floor. Um, and then there's the whole odd little bit about with the uh, the Jews harp that appears. Uh, the, thing, the, the instrument that makes a little boingy sound. That's, yeah, that's what that is. <laughs> and it's it's weird because, you know, that's something that you would normally associate more with a Western. Yeah. And yet he only ever did. He only ever used it as far as I know. Uh, he only ever used it in this film. And then there was a, another crime film called The Sicilian Clan with uh, Lino Ventura and uh, Jean Gabin and uh, Alain Delon. Um, it was you know, sort of it was a crime movie that takes place partially in Europe and partially in the United States. And the theme from from that one also has uh, the, the Jews harp in it. I was considering using that theme as well, because it's, that's that's another favorite of mine. But um yeah, it's it's a weird choice, and that's one that I I don't know if there is any uh, significance to the use of the Jews harp, but uh, it's it's an odd sound that one hears very rarely, uh, especially outside, as I say, outside of a western. All right, well, uh, sticking with 1970, let's hear a selection from Violent City. And this is another sort of a crime film that uh, takes place over in Europe, but it stars um, uh, Charles Bronson and uh, Jill St. John, his wife that he uh, 
the stole from that guy in the great escape and uh telly savalas is the uh the, the bad guy and uh, i i just love the uh this this is the main theme that you hear that you, you've just heard for violent city and i i love it because it's just got this really great down and dirty quality to it there's just layered with uh this, this slashing uh hard uh guitar sound that uh and i just really like it i just i love the sound of it <laughs> If I, I don't know if either of you have seen Violent City. I have. No, it's uh, the title alone sounds like my kind of movie. Uh, and it starts and, out. And Telly Savalas is a villain. Come on now. And it starts out with a really fantastic car chase. You know, uh, if you're a fan of car chases at all, you should seek out Violent City because this one's a corker. <laughs> um, we're actually going to be skipping ahead. Uh, yeah, we're launching uh, 12 years uh, ahead, right? Um, that's that, yeah, I'm actually vamping because it's so far ahead that I'm having trouble, uh, uh, catching up to it. I will mention in the interim. Yeah. We're, so we're skipping the entire 1970s after 19, after 1970, which I'm sure that we'll, we're going to get emails about how can you leave out, uh, you know, sure. some of the, some of those Giallo, uh, movies, uh, that people, uh, love and that I haven't seen from that time. One I have seen that I said earlier that I was going to mention, uh, um, a movie that, uh, I don't think this score is that great. And that's uh, 1973's My Name is Nobody, which I think takes that playfulness that we heard in in something like Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion and maybe I think goes a little too far with it. Like, I, I feel like there are there are different camps of of spaghetti westerns and you've got like on the one on the far end of one of, of, of the uh, spectrum, you've got the very bleak Sergio Corbucci type of the great silence type of things. On the other ones, you've got the spaghetti westerns that are so cartoonish that if it weren't for all the murders, that essentially be children's fair. Um, I feel like uh, a movie like Sabata is actually very good. I love that movie, but and also I feel like I could watch that. I could show that movie to a nine-year-old, and they would have a, a blast. My name is Nobody has that like cartoonish, over-the-top uh, uh, feel. It has a lot of like parts where uh, he's like slapping a guy multiple times in the. the footage is like undercranked and like sped up, oh, wow. so it look it looks cartoonish. And I feel like the music especially the main character's uh theme which i think is sort of like an acoustic guitar theme um it's just a little too silly <laughs> uh i don't know uh west do you have thoughts on my name is nobody which we're not hearing no, i i haven't seen that movie i've i've heard the music i you wouldn't believe how many more well maybe, maybe you would because he wrote like he has like over 500 credits to his name but i have a lot of morricone scores for movies that i've never laid eyes on hmm. <laughs> um, now david real quick i did want to say that you you a moment ago you mentioned or you, you uttered uh i think maybe my favorite like first half to any sentence which is if it weren't for all the murders comma <laughs> and anything that comes after is just going to be yeah. great <laughs> uh all right uh so we're also skipping over um days of heaven which i know is right. uh uh i mean uh not all was, that's that a was his first oscar nomination okay but isn't is that that's also a situation like teorema where not all of the music that appears in the movie is his all right it's been a while since I yeah the the main theme in the movie is a bit of uh, a carnival of the animals a classical piece right hey the terence malick used um the aquarium i mean that that specific piece from carnival of the animals and uh and then 
he asked Morricone to write a piece that sort of sounded like it, which he did. And so they, they, you know, they sort of fit together in that way. But, you know, that's not, I don't think that's something that you should be asking a composer to do, but uh, I guess, you know, Terrence Malick did it and Morricone complied. So I guess, you know, and again, he got his first Oscar nomination out of it. So I guess everybody was happy. Uh, there's also a lot of folk music in there. Uh, some of it I think was played yeah. by um, Leo Kotke, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm a big Leo Kotke fan. Um, uh, <laughs> I am. I, I don't know. Uh, Tyler, do you remember you and I met doing a play together mm-hmm. and the uh, music we would play over the house as people were getting seated before uh, uh, before the show started was Leo Kotke music because I, oh. I, I picked it because uh, it seemed that that style of music, which is sometimes referred to as American primitive guitar music, uh, apparently it, um, it worked uh, is, uh, is something that uh, appeals to me. Okay. So we're skipping over the, that we're also, we're skipping over La Caja fall, which is a movie that doesn't have a particularly distinct score, but uh, that I watched uh, thinking it might in preparation for this episode and can say is a really, really good movie. Um, and so many of the very specific lines and gags from the birdcage are lifted directly from the uh, Caja fall down to, down to the, uh, Nathan Lane, uh, what will become the Nathan Lane character, uh, piercing the piece of toast when he's trying to butter it like a man and screaming <laughs> like that's in the original. I, uh, anyway, well, we're skipping over all that to 1982's the thing. Let's hear that.
uh, boy. Wes made me laugh. It's not my fault. Wes made me laugh. Yeah, Wes did make (laughs) us laugh. uh, uh, Hopefully hopefully that's all been edited out. You're being a bad influence, Wes. I'm holding up album covers, everybody. You can't you can't see them, but I'm just holding them up for Tyler and David's edification. Uh, I have a I have this uh, very limited edition soundtrack for the thing on vinyl, and it's uh, it's a it is a thing of beauty. I love it. It's one of my favorites. Uh, I don't know that there's anything much left to say about the Morricone score for the thing that hasn't already been said. Uh, uh, it's it's absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. It's. Uh, incredibly uh, creepy and disturbing and you can't listen to it without you know wondering if maybe there's something over your shoulder (laughs) and and yet for all that uh, all of the music that Morricone wrote for the thing is not in the film and in fact there's a couple of pieces from the the, his score for the thing that Tarantino appropriated for Mm. the hateful eight many years later and it it's it, it works in, in that context. It's okay. Um, but, uh, and yeah, I know there, there are some people who think that maybe uh, Morricone wrote something that was, you know, sort of a, a, a electronic uh, in nature as sort of a, a nod to John Carpenter, who, you know, prior to this time and then into the future would compose the music for a lot of his own films. But I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think he just mm-hmm. came up with uh, what he wanted to do, what, what he felt was appropriate for the film. The only, other interesting things that I'd read that um, Morricone had, he had composed all this music and then he had uh, recorded uh, electronic versions and orchestral versions. And the, so to me, this means that maybe there's uh, an orchestral version of this piece of music lying around mm-hmm. somewhere that we haven't heard. And if so, I, I would love to hear that. But you know, so far, as far as I know, it hasn't surfaced. Um, I feel like but, if it existed, someone would have tried to sell it to us by now, right? Sure. Yeah, I think it would have turned because, you know, the, the soundtrack has been out of print for a long time. And then uh, it recently went back into print. Uh, so it's it's now available on CD. And then, like I said, I, I just bought a, uh, a couple of years ago. There was a limited edition of vinyl uh a copy of the soundtrack that was put out by waxwork records and they have a, a not so limited edition that's still available but you can get the cd now it's been out of print for a very long time uh, and i don't know why but uh, and they it was digitally remastered so it sounds splendid um and yeah this if there was some any extra unreleased stuff they could have put it on there and everybody would have uh, been over the moon about it i know i would have uh but uh yeah, it's just it's this is my favorite John Carpenter movie. Uh, the thing I I, I still I mean, I've never been a big horror movie fan, but those ones that I like I, I think are uh, superb, and this one it really is just uh, fantastic. I've seen it several times uh, on the big screen as well as numerous times here at home. Uh, I never get tired of it, and the score. Yeah, I, I wish that there was more of it in the film itself. I, I'm not sure why carpenter made those decisions that he made because again that was his whole thing is that up till that point he had been scoring his films himself you know he did dark star he did halloween he did uh, escape from new york and the fog uh and this was his first big time studio gig and i guess for that reason he thought that he had to bring in somebody else to write the music and so he really wanted ennio morricone and so you that's know, what i was that's- gonna i was gonna ask was it carpenter's decision or was it the 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 studio saying we don't trust you to do your own your own score i'm not sure if it was his decision or if it was the studio forced it upon him i wouldn't be surprised if they said something about it but the funny thing is is that if if it was a studio decision 
my guess is they wouldn't have been happy with him choosing any more Coney. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's what leads me to believe that it was his decision and not the studios. Yeah. It could, <laughs> I mean, it could have been that like, Hey, this is a, a big budget movie with a lot of special effects. I'm going to have my hands full already. Maybe I'll just go with someone that it's a, that I can trust with the music. Um, and yeah, I, I adore the music. I adore the thing in general, but, um, but I adore the music, um, especially like that, for lack of a better term, I guess the, the theme, like don't, don't like that thing. And it really does speak to this idea that like with, with a few exceptions here and there, I feel like the most effective horror scores are the, are the ones that are tremendously complex, but at their core are very simple. Like when you hear John Williams talk about the jaws theme that like, he just wanted something that not, not unlike the shark itself is just, is just constantly moving, but, uh, you know, unnervingly simple and like the, the underlying sort of heartbeat quality to the thing score, I think really, it feels very primal, uh, which is of course what the, what the film is. And, uh, yeah, I, I love it. My friend, uh, my friend, Amsey, who, who did the music for my, uh, documentary, he, uh, I think I introduced him to the thing and, he loved the music so much. And it's a thing that he, every once in a while, for no particular reason, if I happen to mention the thing or any more County or John Carpenter, any number of things, uh, he will immediately just go thump, thump. like he'll do that. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, he was, he got his, uh, his degree from uh, CSUN uh, in uh, music composition. And he had to, uh, it's uh, California wonder- state university, Northridge for those oh, uh, who yes, aren't yes. Uh, uh, Southland residents. Yeah. Um, but he, uh, his final assignment was actually to like take, uh, an existing piece of music and rearrange it. And so he actually did music from, uh, the hateful eight. So he's, he's actually a big, uh, Morricone fan. And I think it started with the thing, uh, which is probably outside of good, the bad and the ugly. I think that's probably true of mo of a lot of like movie fans that like, that's the score they think of with him. Uh, and rightfully so it's a marvelous score. Uh, okay. So now what we're seeing here is that as Wes mentioned at the beginning, uh, Morricone never relocated to, uh, the U S but at, the, at this time in the 1980s, I think we start to see him being hired more by American directors who clearly grew up or at least were, yeah. you know, uh, influenced by his music, especially in his genre of movies. You see, you know, directors like John Carpenter and the one we're going to get to, but, uh, before we get there, I want to stop and ask. So I have never seen the mission. But yeah. I remember uh, when Ennio Morricone passed away, a lot of people, fans on Twitter, were the you know you, you know you whenever someone a musician passes away, you you post a link to your favorite uh, thing. A lot of people posted uh, the mission's music. I listened to it. I, I liked it. I still never seen the movie, so I didn't feel comfortable picking it. But do either of you have anything to to add about the the mission or why it was uh, not on your lists? I'll say this in, in Christian circles, uh, there are a handful of movies that, uh, that like even Christians who are not comfortable with movies recommend that they would recommend, uh, that are like non Christian films officially. One is like chariots of fire. And one of them is the mission. So I saw the mission many years ago to kind of be on that, uh, be on the same page. And uh, I thought it was good. Not great. It looks, it certainly looks good. And I really, really liked the music. Um, and, uh, 
Yeah, I was I was tempted to incorporate it once I saw that uh, the West did not. But I also realized like it's been so long since I'd seen it that the music hadn't really stayed with me, which is not a fault of the film. It's just I hadn't seen it for a while. So I was like, okay, well, I feel like that should be for me like a a disqualifier because the other two things that I suggested, like those pieces of music have been firmly in my head for a long time. Um, But the music, if I recall correctly, the music for the mission is quite is quite lovely. It is really good. And um, yeah, I agree that the, the mission is a very good film. I, I, uh, I, it does stop just short of greatness for me. And I agree that the cinematography is, is excellent. I think it won an Oscar for that, but I can't recall for sure. I know Morricone was nominated for an Oscar for that score as well. And then he lost that one to Herbie Hancock for Round Midnight. And there was yeah. a lot of controversy about that because, you know, most of the music in Round Midnight is really, it was just, it's jazz music that's, you know, already been written by somebody else yeah. uh herbie hancock's contributions were minimal and so there were some there's there, there were plenty of people who were upset uh about uh, that that uh, award going to uh, herbie hancock and not ennio morricone um and the score is magnificent it's very lovely uh, the only reason i didn't include it is again because it, see exactly what you were saying david a lot of people were you know were posting music from that movie because that's it's it's very familiar to you know many people uh for some reason i'm i'm not even sure why because it's like you know the mission wasn't a very popular movie that i recall it wasn't like a huge blockbuster and i don't recall you know this, that soundtrack album flying off the shelves so <laughs> I, I don't know but but somehow there was like some of that music it just really stuck with uh with some audience members and so and that's the only thing that they remember and so because it's it's so you know highly regarded by a lot of people i thought let's just go ahead and put that one aside and there was there's some really obvious things that i did include because uh i don't care how obvious they are i love them and then there were other things you know like the ballad of machine gun mccain (laughs) that i put in just because i wanted to show different sides to what Morricone could do. Cause I, again, that's something that I feel is really important that it gets overlooked by a lot of people. Yeah. Speaking of really obvious uh, inclusions, we'll go to mine, uh, yeah, which I wanted to mention another, uh, like John Carpenter, another, another uh, savvy American, uh, largely genre filmmaker uh, who clearly loved Morricone is Brian De Palma. This is not the last time that he would hire him, but uh, we are going to listen to a selection from 1987's The Untouchables.
Okay. So, uh, yeah, this is, I mean, I felt, I, I felt bad including this because I just felt so basic. Uh, but you know what, son of a bitch, I don't like the untouchables that much as a movie. Really? It's weird. Like it looks great. <laughs> and like visually, I mean, it's art direction. Like that's all wonderful. I adore the music. I think the acting is, is good. And yet somehow, despite being written by David Mamet, I just don't really respond to the beats and, uh, and it just never really worked for me. I've tried, I've seen the movie many times, but not unlike uh, tombstone. I just can't get on board with like people of my generation generation who just like, like, Oh my gosh, the untouchable is so great. It just, it never quite clicked for me, but there are individual elements that absolutely click for me. Most notably that score. Uh, and then even more specifically, although the whole score is great, um, because it, the theme I think is what sticks out to me, but there is also this nice moment, like sort of this triumphant theme, uh, that shows up a couple of times when our, our heroes have done something, uh, really great that it's like, it's, it's huge. It's like a fanfare, which I really love. But to me, the theme, like the, like I think the untouchables peaks with its opening credits uh, because uh, the credits are great, but also the, uh, the music, it's just, it's just so immediate and urgent. And it just like, I don't know if I've ever heard a piano be used so menacingly and yet uh, almost as though it's an action, it's an action score in itself. Um well, the, the very first piece of music that we played in the Battle of Algiers, I, I mean, the, the yeah, piano yeah. In, in that one. But again, you know, you probably you just heard that one. So. Yeah. Uh, and it's yeah, I really uh, it just grabs you like the way I would describe the, the theme from uh, from the Untouchables uh, to say nothing of the score itself. But the theme, I feel like it just grabs you by the shirt and just pulls you. And it's like, pay attention, you fuck. Uh, and just like, and it forces you to pay attention to a movie that is uh, ultimately subpar, but uh, it's in my opinion. I, yeah. In your opinion, I don't know. I go, I go back and forth with the untouchables because I think um, the screenplay is David Mamet, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's maybe the weakest. Uh, uh, it feels a little overwritten in, in, in some, <laughs> in some ways, but I think the diplomaness of it and, and the sequences like the, the, what the 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 kid the the, the bomb baby in the uh oh, the, bomb, the baby yeah, carriage the, but also the, the bomb in the in the oh, bar, yeah bar uh, right. like there's there's so much great stuff the cinematography is is so sharp and grand at the same time i think yeah. it's it's such an eminently watchable movie that i can forgive some of the the just boneheaded lines of dialogue like that's he's the, in the car which is I, like which i loved as a kid and now i think yeah, it's so stupid of course yeah i think that's the thing is you know uh I'm I'm also one to say that a movie is more than just its script, but I do think that like the script by an otherwise reliable uh, playwright and screenwriter, I feel like it's he's like what, so from a structure standpoint, from a character arc standpoint, and from a dialogue standpoint, just everything just feels so eager to please and so would be clever that it just gets it, it, it gets tiresome for me um so it's not merely the dialogue i think it's 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 everything about the story as told but yes i the the from a stylistic standpoint i think it is definitely uh, de palma kind of at the at the height of his powers i just feel like the movie itself just doesn't because it is trying to tell a story and the story it's trying to tell i find uh pretty shallow in a lot of ways 
well, well you let's... know oh, the untouchables is based on you know the, the tv show yeah <laughs> it's just and, and there was you know the, back then you definitely weren't getting very much below the surface on on anything so that's so so considering the source i mean i think that they they sort of felt that they maybe wanted to try and dig something mine something deeper out of it but you know what can you do when you're starting yeah. from such a shallow place to begin with and david mamet the older i get the more i think that david mamet's real strength lies in his plotting more so than his dialogue i think his dialogue is really just sort of meant to distract you from the the plot gimmick that's going to come up in the third act <laughs> There's okay, fair enough. I do think, I mean, but the eighties, I mean, like that screenplay for the verdict is great. Like yeah. on, on every level from a dialogue stand, everything. Yeah. Um, and then, and also he, that's, I mean, he put out, he, he wrote Glengarry Glen Ross, the play like in the eighties, he'd done American Buffalo in the seventies and a lot of really great plays. Like he was doing good, good stuff uh, in the eighties and seemed able to sort of rein himself in. But I mean, I guess this was 87, same year he did house of games uh he would do homicide shortly thereafter i like both of those movies but i think this was probably around the time that he started getting clever which is uh -huh. not necessarily a bad thing because he can be very clever but i think he also is willing to i think he's very much willing to take his own intentions into account uh and be like oh, i'm trying to be clever and then that's the end uh and it's like okay well you just need to work on that execution um so yeah it's uh and that's the thing is like a few years later, The Fugitive was based on a, on a episodic, somewhat shallow TV show. And I love that movie. That movie I, I watch over and over again, and I love it so much. Um, but yeah, I, I realized that, again, sort of like Tombstone, there are just movies that people, like guys, especially my age, for whatever reason, just really love. And I've, tr I've really tried, uh, and it just never quite fits for me, despite there being so many individual elements of the untouchables that work. Oh, well, that's okay. I mean, you know, yeah. no, nobody has to like everything. I, I liked it from the, the first time that I saw it when it came out. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not like a huge favorite of mine, but there's lots yeah. of things in it that I like. You know, I mean, Sean Connery's awesome. You know, really, for me, as with a lot of uh, movies that he's in, the biggest drawback is uh, Kevin Costner because he's just a big old block of wood. Uh, everybody else in the movie is far more uh, lively and entertaining and engaging than he is. You know, I mean, there, there's people... the inclusion of Del Close uh as as like the guy trying to to bribe him yeah Such a goofy <laughs> see, looking guy. See, he's he's only in the movie for like one minute and yeah. he makes more of an impression than kevin coster does in the entire picture yeah. you know and like you know i was talking about the the whole baby carriage sequence i mean it's like you know he's the only one who doesn't seem like he's going in slow motion because he's just been like that through the whole picture. Aww. But having said that, I just, I, I love the I'm more Tony Costner fan. Oh, really? Um, but especially, I'm, I think he's I'm done more some a good fan, things. I think I'm more a fan of like, uh, more recent, like salt and pepper haired kind of character actory, Kevin Costner, even when he's playing a lead in something like uh, draft day, which is a, uh, a so, 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 so movie, but, um, uh, or, or his small role in, uh, Molly's game, which is also a, not, not a good movie at all, but and, um, and not a good uh, scene, but he does a good job with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I've gotten, I, 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 it has gotten to a point as he's gotten older that I've been like, Ooh, Kevin Costner's in this. Um, oh, okay. but yeah, I do agree at the time. Maybe, maybe he was like, uh, 
like Alec Baldwin in the eighties and early nineties, where it's like, uh, Alec Baldwin didn't become someone whose presence I look forward to in a movie until he became a character actor or a comedic actor. Uh, and maybe Kevin Costner is just a better character actor than a lead. I still maybe. think Kevin Costner did a great job in JFK. Um, which was only a few, a few years after the untouchables, but like, I mean, you know, he delivers that final monologue and it's, it really works for me. Um, yeah. He did a good job in that one. Did you ever see him in uh, uh, open range? Yeah. 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 And, and, but he's, he's great in that one, uh, but, but almost entirely because he's not really the center of attention. Robert Duvall is really the, the main character in that one. And he knocks it out of the park. And also I would say that uh, as a director, cause he only directed and the, the, Kevin Costner only directed three movies. I would say that open range is the best of the three. I would agree. But uh, there's, there's but, a lot of good, there's a lot of good in dances with wolves. Like a lot of people, because it beat out Goodfellas, a lot of people like discount it, but I think there's actually a lot of good in that movie. I did. Yeah, I, was, could, I somewhat recently watched like the director's cut. And I think it's, I unsurprisingly, I think it's a lot better. I think it delves into so, sort of the complexities and the, the, the uncomfortable aspects of, of the, of the, story a lot more than the theatrical cut i guess on yeah so, yeah now, Wes, not I, bad. Wes, before we hit record we were talking about tom petty as a tom petty fan how can the how can the postman <laughs> not be your favorite kevin costner movie oh my god i saw that movie for free and i wanted my money back <laughs> it's uh yeah that was just it was so misguided i can't I mean, but you know for, yeah, for those who don't know tom petty makes an appearance um possibly as himself in the postman yeah. it's never really stated but uh and you know that's nice it's nice to see him everywhere anytime he shows up it's like oh oh good it's tom petty but uh, but look as far as morricone's music for the untouchables um it really is a a grand score and mm -hmm. it's the kind of thing that you know, just it really just just to show that he can do something like that, because like I said, we've been, you know, you know, I've been talking about you know, the various other kinds of things that he can do. And then, as you've pointed out, David, he can get really just super avant garde and out there. Uh, I mean, he was he was part of a, an improvisatory avant garde uh, ensemble of musicians in Italy. Uh, whose name I can't pronounce, <laughs> but uh, they would just, they would just make all kinds of uh, just utilize just whatever was around and they could make, you know, any kind of strange electronic noises, uh, play instruments or not play instruments or play instruments the wrong way and create this, you know, this very, these very odd avant-garde soundscapes. He was capable of doing all kinds of, uh, you know, interesting experimental uh, uh, musics like that. But then you you hear something like his score for the Untouchables, and it's it is a very straightforward, uh, symphonic yeah. kind of Hollywood esque type movie score. Brawny, uh, I would call it brawny. Yeah, sure. And it's it's exactly what the film needed, and it's it's kind of interesting that I I really give De Palma a lot of credit for saying Morricone is the guy who should do this because there are definitely plenty of American composers who could have, you know, tackled a film like this and probably would have uh, jumped at the chance to do it. But, you know, to go, you know, really outside and, uh, and, and pick a guy like Ennio Morricone, I, I think it's, it's a brilliant idea. And Morricone rose to the occasion and wrote some uh, score that is this, you know, apart from the, the opening theme that you talked about, and then there's a really great sort of love theme. There's a great theme for, you know, uh, 
the the bad guy, uh, Robert De Niro's character, yeah. Al Capone, that which is, is fun. That is a fun scene. And yeah, and it has a really great little playful quality to it when yeah. you have the the trumpets with the wah wah in there. It's like you know, Morricone knows this isn't something that you're really supposed to be taking seriously. Knock it off. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a fun. It's a cartoon gangster movie. Yeah. But <laughs> and also just you know the the theme for the uh, for the friendship between the four you know main characters, you know it's 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 very uh emotional and it's also got a slightly mournful quality to it because he's really just sort of foreshadowing the fact that half these guys are going to be dead by the end of the picture yeah. and i will use that to get us into the next well, movie uh, that, uh that sorry I, that, I'm, I'm i'm driving this this train <laughs> oh yeah sorry. <laughs> Dan, I'm sorry david i'm sorry i forgot you were there <laughs> um yeah well, um uh, i'll throw back to you in a second but i just want to say we're we are skipping over uh well first off he would reunite with De Palma in Casualties of War, which I haven't seen since I was a kid. Um, and then he, all, we are also skipping over uh, 1989's Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, which is just, just wanted to mention that as a fun collab between Morricone <laughs> yeah. and Elmodovar. Um, uh, a fun pair would have liked to have been in on some of those conversations. Uh, but yeah, so we're going to 1991. And Tyler, what are we going to hear from? We are going to hear uh, a selection from Barry Levinson's Bugsy.
so yeah, uh, Wes, you mentioned the sort of the, the, the love theme or sort of the, this romantic quality to some of the music in the untouchables the, you find a lot of that in Bugsy as well. Um, you know, in fact, the, the selection that I picked easily could have come from certain scenes of the untouchables. Um, but uh, like the way he uses like a, a flute to create this, this moment of, of, of sadness, um, but also a, a, an element of romance because Bugsy, first off, it's a, it's a scene. It's a, it's a movie that I think a lot more people should see. It was seen a lot at the time, but uh, similar to a lot of movies from like the late eighties, early nineties that, uh, have been sort of overshadowed by other movies that came out that year. Uh, it, it's a film I, that not a lot of people I know talk about, which is unfortunate because I think Bugsy is such a fascinating film from a stylistic standpoint, from a narrative standpoint. Um, and I think at its core, it is a, uh, it's a romance between uh, Ben Siegel and um, Virginia Hill. I think her name is. Um, yes. And, and when they're together, like they crackle with energy. I mean, it's, it's Warren Beatty and Annette Benning, And so obviously there's something real, there's really something going on there, but that's where they uh, met, I believe. Yeah. And, and, you know, they're still together. I saw them uh, the other day. Why, by which, I mean, a few years ago at the theater seeing uh, last days in the desert. Um, but uh, you know, the, the theme that plays is what you're talking about in regards to the untouchables, which is it's romantic and it's beautiful, but there is a tone of melancholy here because you know that this is a doomed relationship because this is a doomed man. Yeah. Uh, that like this, you cannot live the way he lives with the people he lives with and expect to be around for a while. Um, and so there's a, a real sadness underneath all of that. And uh, it's a really beautiful score. I really, I really respond to it. Yeah, it is, it is a really good score. And, and I agree that Bugsy is a fine movie. I think that, that more people should see it. Now, uh, I'm only speculating on this point, but I, I have a hunch that Morricone was not the choice of the director, Barry Levinson, as much as it was the choice of Warren Beatty. Uh, that's very possible, given because, given Beatty's uh, love of him. Yes, and that yeah, Beatty because, hired him again in on Bullworth. Yeah, well, not only that, but in between there, there was another movie that uh, Warren Beatty did with Annette Benning called Love Affair, which was a remake. Right. You know, and that was directed by Glenn Gordon Caron of uh, Moonlighting fame, and they brought Morricone in on that one too. So, and I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that's Warren Beatty more than anybody else. Uh, I I don't know that Glenn Gordon Caron alone would uh, have the clout to be able to hire a composer like Morricone. So, and I think Barry Levinson's like tendency, I think to, and I, I think he's a, a really good director, but I think his tendency to sort of romanticize the past, I could see him playing into, there is a certain jazziness to elements of the score. Uh, and certainly he likes playing into the style and the glitz and glamor of Bugsy's world. So I could see him going with a, with a, a, a a composer that maybe gave him more of that and maybe less of uh, the melancholy. Um, but uh, you know, we could be wrong. Maybe Barry Levinson was totally on board uh, and it was his first choice, but yes, the, the presence of Warren Beatty does suggest that there is uh, the influence of Warren Beatty as well. Yeah. And also because uh, you know, Levinson collaborated with Randy Newman on two of his, you know, mm -hmm. previous films, so the natural and then uh, uh, Avalon mm -hmm. and Randy Newman could have hit those notes. I mean, I don't know that he would have hit them as well as Morricone did, but I think he could have done it. 
So, and again, I think this is why I think that Morricone was uh, Warren Beatty's uh, choice and not Randy Newman's. Although, uh, <laughs> Barry Newman, uh, I mean, Barry Levinson did work with Morricone one more time on uh, Disclosure. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, if, wow. did, did, it, did either of you see that movie? No. I saw that when I was very young. Um, yeah. I. Uh, wow. It's, it's a big old wow. I mean, that was like that was about 25, 26 years ago. I remember I read the novel. And then I saw the movie. I tried the breakfast cereal. Uh, and this is one of those things. I mean, you you watch it now. I mean, I don't know if I could recommend you watch it now unless you plan on watching it ironically, because it's one of those things where uh, it's it's sort of a race to see, uh, you know, who who wins the the astonishing uh lack of uh, forethought in terms of computer technology or the astonishing lack of forethought in terms of uh, gender politics because uh, they're they're both just you know way outdated it's it's amazing yeah, yeah. to watch and also, and also which, which elements will age quickest <laughs> and it's also this thing of like hey we need a scumbag get me michael douglas like it was just we need like a, a slick scumbag because that was his thing for like eight or nine straight years yeah yeah whether it be a perfect murder or wall street or the game or game. whatever yeah. yeah well that was i think that you know after he won the oscar for it you know in in wall street sure. i figured i think you know then well i'm on this track and it's working really well for me so i'm just gonna yeah. you know ride it ride it to the end of the line <laughs> Yeah, the shaggy dog character of uh, Jewel of the Nile, that, that's not happening anymore. <laughs> yeah, All right, but, let's... Uh, uh, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that, you know, yeah, if you get the chance to see Disclosure, I mean, you know, flip a coin, maybe. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, <laughs> uh, let's jump ahead to our penultimate selection, if I'm doing the math right, mm -hmm. uh, to 1998's The Legend of 1900.
Uh, I'll, uh, this was West's pick, but I will say um, that this was the one that I said that I would have picked if West hadn't hadn't already picked it. Uh, uh, just a little backstory: this uh, this movie came out. Uh, it's directed by Giuseppe Tornatore, with whom uh, Morricone had worked before on Cinema Paradiso. Um, this movie came out when I was I would have seen it when I was 16 years old. And so given some of the movies we mentioned, Disclosure, movies we didn't mention, like In the Line of Fire, uh, Untouchables we mentioned, I certainly had seen movies that were scored by Ennio Morricone before. But I'm pretty sure The Legend of 1900 would have been the first movie that I went to knowing, oh, this this movie is scored by Ennio Morricone. It's the first time I went to a movie knowing his name at 16 years old and uh, was not uh, disappointed. Um, uh, the movie itself, uh, I, I think, is also... Uh, uh, pretty good in my memory it's been a while but i the but the the music is really what uh what sticks with me so i just wanted to uh, I'll, I'll throw it to west who actually picked uh the piece but uh, uh I, I wanted to mention that uh this is very uh this this piece and, and the entire score are very uh close to me and and my uh my relationship to any Morricone. oh that's cool yeah uh Morricone wrote the score for every tornatory film from cinema paradiso on uh that's like like 10 pictures i think nine wow. or ten maybe more i'm not sure but uh you know and that's the thing you know he everybody when everybody talks about him they talk about his collaboration with sergio leone uh which was five pictures and you know that's it's very uh very important five pictures so you know nobody's going to dispute that but there are plenty of directors that he's worked with more than once he worked with brian de palma three times Wait, am i okay Am I, is it five or is it six? So there's the Man with the Name trilogy, the uh, uh, Once Upon a Time in the U. Um, oh, that's uh, right. That's right. I keep forgetting. America, but also and, Duck You Sucker, right? Yeah, I keep forgetting that one. I, right. <laughs> but I think because originally the only one he wasn't even supposed to direct that one. He stepped ah. in after like, I think they wanted to get, they wanted Peter Bogdanovich to do it. And then something went kablooey and then Leone stepped in. You don't say. <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry, I, I interrupted you. You were talking about collaborate, his collaboration with Tornatore. Yeah, he's, he's collaborated with a bunch of guys. and uh, But yeah, Tornatore, done, he's done every film that Tornatore has directed since uh, Cinema Paradiso going, that's going back, you know, 32 years. Um, and uh, yeah, this, the, the movie, The Legend of 1900, um, I like it. I'm not crazy about it. It's, it was his attempt at making sort of a big sprawling epic kind of film. And I think too many things in it don't really work for me as opposed to the things that do. Um, uh, I, I, I never enjoyed the, uh, the piano duel between the main character played by Tim Roth and Jelly Roll Morton, uh, because no, you're not going to beat Jelly Roll Morton in a piano duel. Just <laughs> stop it. You know, it's just one of those things that, you know, I, that for, for standard run of the mill audience members, they're going to look at it and go, yeah, this is awesome. And, you know, I'm just apart from the racial, uh, you know, politics of it. If uh -huh. you, you just, you just set that aside and just say, no, Jelly Roll Morton was, you know, an amazing pianist. And to say that, you know, this work of fiction is going to come in. It's like, so this is your uh, Brad Pitt beating up Bruce Lee and once upon a time in Hollywood. <laughs> Uh, I guess. I mean, I don't. I, I never really got that deep into that. The thing that I compare it to is uh, the the scene in uh, the, a Walter Hill film from the mid '80s called Crossroads. I don't know if you ever saw that one, but it's it's a deeply nutty. 
Is that with Ralph Macchio? Yes, it is. Okay, it, right. it's, oh. it's, it's, I've it's seen very, the Crossroads with Britney Spears in it. Uh, this is a very different one. Actually. This is a very different one. It's it's a deeply nutty film, and Walter Hill. I mean, I give him points for uh, his love of the blues, but uh, this is material that could have and should have been handled better by other people. And the thing is, look, uh, without getting too far into the weeds here, the, the Crossroads climactic scene is a guitar duel in hell. You heard me. Between Ralph Macchio and Satan's personal personal shredder, who's played by Steve Vai. <laughs> okay, and for those of you who don't know who Steve Vai is, I mean, he's one of the you know big guitar heroes in of real life. I mean, he's played you know he uh, he played with uh, David Lee Roth after he left Van Halen, but before that, he spent several years working with Frank Zappa. And Frank Zappa doesn't take just anybody. Uh, and just the whole idea of Ralph Macchio wiping up the floor with Steve Vai it was just like the height of uh, of ridiculousness to me. So uh, I will so I, to get. To get back into Legend of 1900, though, uh, one of the things that's going for it is a great cast, and Jelly Roll Morton is played by Clarence Williams III, uh, an eccentric actor uh, whose presence I always enjoy. In yeah, yeah, and then, and then that's another thing too, because I mean, look, as much as I like Tim Roth, uh, you know, Clarence Williams III, uh, I think he had a lot more presence in his scenes than Tim Roth did. But okay. Now, the thing, though, that just it just really blows me away about th this particular piece of music in this film, uh, it's the thing that I'll always love about, you know, about the movie and why I'm glad that it was made, because it gave Morricone the opportunity to do something that I don't see uh, people doing as a matter of course. Uh, I don't know if anybody has ever done anything like this before, but I mean, he's very deliberately doing something here where the third note in every bar is kind of a clam um and a clam is a, a a slang term among musicians when you hit a bum note you're clamming and you know the the, pian the pianist in this piece is deliberately hitting two keys that are right next to each other a white key and a black key at the same time which you normally you know there's i can't think of too many piano pieces that have been written where you're supposed to be doing that and it sounds off you can hear it in the third note in every bar throughout the entire piece from start to finish it's always there and it's meant to you know to convey the just the the the, the state of mind of the character of the protagonist in that particular moment and it does so uh in such a brilliant and off-putting fashion and no on top of that he does it with the very instrument that the character is famous for playing uh it's just it's so remarkable that anybody would have the audacity to do something like that and do it through from start to finish i don't see i, I don't hear other composers taking on something like that and, and doing it that way and pulling it off so magnificently because yes, it sounds off. It's not something, but it's not something where you're like, Oh, I can't stand this. Take it away. You're just like, Oh my gosh, this what's, what's going on here. Something, something is wrong. Something is wrong. And I don't know why. And it just gives you, and then as the rest of the, the orchestra comes in, you really just get this feeling of, of overwhelming sadness, which again, speaks to the character's state of mind. Uh, and it's just, it's, it's, Again, I just keep returning to, to the, the, the word audacious, uh, but that's what it is. And he pulls it off. He pulls it off so well. It's just remarkable. It's a thing of beauty. All, All right. right. So does that bring us to our, our final entries? Is there anything else we want to... Uh... Uh, let's see what, what, what happened in the interim more, more De Palma with Mission to Mars. Uh, His third and final collaboration with uh, De Palma. Yeah. Uh, Ripley's Game. I can't say that I remember the music. Uh, 
all that well in Ripley's game. Um, uh, yeah, I guess we'll just go ahead to uh, 2015's The Hateful Eight. You kind of have to talk about this one because, I yeah. mean, he's done a couple of scores uh, after this. I mean, he, you know, he just died in uh, you know, the beginning of July of this year. And this was like, you know, this movie is five years ago. Uh, he's, he's done scores in particular. I, I think he did like one or two more Tornatori films in between then and, and his death. But this is the one that, uh, I mean, he won. Uh, they gave him an honorary award, you know, which is basically just like, you know, in, in the history of the the academy the honorary oscar is you know the sorry we didn't get you when we were supposed to award <laughs> yeah. uh, you know that's the but um but then 
he he did this score and the academy got it right they they handed him the oscar for this and and i think it was uh, it was well deserved i think it was amazing it was a return to westerns which you know he hadn't done in some time uh it was an opportunity for him to actually work firsthand with Quentin Tarantino, as opposed to all the times that Quentin Tarantino used his music, including uh, the very first piece that we played, which he used in uh, Inglorious Bastards, the piece from the Battle of Algiers. He, he employed that piece in the Inglorious Bastards when they were busting that guy out of the pokey. Uh, so this was the, the first time that uh, Tarantino actually employed a composer mm-hmm. to write music for one of his films. And I don't know if he's ever going to do that again, yeah. but, and, and it's, it's like, it was all but inevitable that if he was ever going to hire a composer to write music for one of his films, it was going to be Morricone. I don't know what would have happened if, uh, if, if he, if he was going to try to make this movie, if, if Tarantino was like, had just written the hateful eight now, and he was thinking, I'm going to put this into production. It's going to be my big movie for 2021. And then Ennio Morricone died. I wonder if he would have continued making it. Mm. But that's a, good, uh, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, because the, the score is, I think it's absolutely integral to, to the piece, uh, to the film. Uh, and then also, as I said, uh, Tarantino employed a couple of pieces that Marconi wrote for the thing that John Carpenter just, you know, didn't use. So, you know, if, if he left them lying around and Tarantino was going to pick them up <laughs> uh, and also, the, I specifically picked the overture because that is a piece of, from the score that maybe some people didn't get to hear because that only played during the theatrical roadshow presentation of The Hateful Eight, which I, I was able to see when it came out. And of course, you know, it was on film because film, hooray. And, uh, and I you also know, he, saw that. Yeah. And, you know, he, yeah. and he shot it in, uh, you know, was it his super panavision or ultra panavision it was one of those big panavisions yeah. and uh uh but uh yeah if you you know if you saw it in uh in a regular theatrical engagement you didn't get the overture and you didn't get the intermission if you bought it on dvd or if you saw it on video uh or you know on streaming or whatever you don't get the or- the overture you don't get the intermission there's so it's it's kind of interesting that that is to this day is still only available if you see the roadshow presentation in a theater on film the way tarantino wants you to see it mm-hmm. and i don't know how many opportunities there are for that outside of his own you know pet theater you know it's uh, so i i rewatched um hateful eight uh, just sort of thinking about morricone and and uh, I just watched, you know, the theatrical version, um, which means no overture. And I was very glad in retrospect. Well, what choice do you I, have? <laughs> exa- yeah. Well, this, and what's interesting is uh, Netflix did this thing where they like added more to it and split it into four parts. I started yeah. watching that because I was curious. Right. And sure enough, as tends to happen, especially with Tarantino at that phase in his career, like you get certain dialogue exchanges like, I see why this was cut. This, this makes sense. <laughs> Let's move it along. Um, but you don't get the overture then, uh, obviously. Nope. And so uh, there is there's something very special about it. And I remember I was I was so excited to go and see it in this format. And then like when the overture came up, I was like, oh, this is so fun because you can just it gives you an opportunity to like sit back, let the tone wash over you of what you're about yeah. to see. 
and then to go from the overture into the the theme which is just so just like so set to mood and lets you know how you should be feeling about what you're about to see uh it was so effective for me like i remember um i mean it sounds silly especially because i think I, I remember the hateful eight more fondly than when I watch it. Now there are moments that I had that I adore now, but there are, I, you see, I see a lot of flaws in it now and a lot of like, for lack of better term indulgences, which is not a thing I like to say, but, um, but at the time, like just hearing the music, just here again, it goes back to what I was saying all the way at the beginning, which is like, this is not a passive score. And I remember just being so energized about the movie because of the music I was hearing and being like, yes, this is not going to be Tarantino movies are, are rarely like a passive viewing experience. But when I, when you hear the music, which is like what Tarantino wanted you to be thinking of or feeling immediately, I was like, Oh man, I can only imagine the movie that is going to be uh, unfolding as a function of this. And yeah, it, the, the music got me. So I was already excited for the experience and already excited for the movie. But then once the music kicked in, I was like, this like affirms that, like, I'm very glad I saw the roadshow experience because, especially because like you said, you can, you don't have that experience anymore outside of like the, the, uh, Tarantino's own theater, which obviously is not open right now, but, and it's not something many people can experience. So, uh, it really was, uh, it was a, a pleasure to re-listen to in preparation for this, uh, in a movie that is good, occasionally great, but that score is, you know, second to none. And you can see that, uh, Tarantino really took more than one page out of Sergio Leone's book oh, and yeah. that you see how he's letting Morricone lead the film and not the other way around. No, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, now, David, I know you're not a huge fan of, of the movie, which is fine, but do you enjoy the, the music uh, aspect of it? Oh, of course. Yeah. I, I like, um, uh, I like the, the, I like Morricone's Westerns and I, and I do feel like there's, at a, to, to maybe certain people, he the 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 sound of westerns is Morricone in a way that they maybe don't realize he was unparalleled, and yet uh, uh, his 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 sound sounds like what we think westerns sound like. Do you know what I mean? I, I yeah. feel like I'm talking in circles here, but um, uh, it's sort of like you know uh, the first time I saw like the movie Akira, I was like. Oh, I've seen, I've seen this sort of thing before, but then didn't realize like, oh, but at the time, no one had seen anything like this, yeah. like this before. And, and, and so, uh, uh, I feel like coming full circle and not actually ending his career with hateful eight, uh, like Wes said, he uh, did a few more scores, uh, after that. Um, uh, it, it does feel like at the end of his career, though, coming coming forward and saying, uh, re reclaiming his, his mantle on, on, on westerns and the the sound of of westerns it really sort of brings his whole career full circle yeah. in that way and that's yeah. something that you know not a lot of people get to do and it's it's really nice that he was able to do that before he died i mean and he was 91 years old and yet i still feel like it was too soon and you know it's it's interesting the idea of of bringing his career full circle like i feel like it, i'm thinking of course in a very broad sort of lofty way but like Marconi was an older guy. 
he probably knew like this might be the last Western I ever do. And that's where my career started. It probably could have been easy for him to make the score more sentimental than it needed to be. Uh, or, or, and it's not, it isn't, that is not a sentimental score. Uh, and I appreciate that he was still like, it's, I think of him sort of the way that we talk about like Martin Scorsese, they're like, I mean, he's getting up there and so many other directors kind of not necessarily play it safe, but they, their, their ambition maybe goes down a little bit. Whereas like Scorsese is like, yeah, I'm going to make this three hour batshit crazy movie about this guy uh, on wall street. And like, he's not, he wasn't holding, he's not holding back. And I feel like that was the same with Morricone, especially with this score. Like he's going to make a Morricone. He's going to, produce a Morricone score. It doesn't matter how old he is. doesn't matter if he's putting a fun cap on things. doesn't matter if he's feeling nostalgic, he's going to make the right score for this movie. Mm. And, uh, and it's, it was a, a pleasure to behold. Well, uh, guys, I think we did it. We talked about, yeah. Uh, all we the com- Morricones. We completed. Morricone. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I mean, no, I'm joking. We did. We skipped over so many, uh, movies because well, how could uh, we not? We had, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't here. have that kind of time. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, unless you were going to just devote an entire podcast to Morricone, then yeah. Yeah, that's, then the sky's the limit. Well, anytime you want to uh, re-enter the podcasting fray, uh, West, sounds like you've got a, an idea already. Um, so oh, uh, uh, this uh, this was this was uh, a lot of fun. Um, thank you, West, for being here. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, um, okay. I'll, I would like to. Uh, I'll just. I'd like to just uh, close out with a with a quote from Morricone. This is one of my favorite things. Is when somebody says something you didn't think they were going to say. It's just uh, Donald Fagan of uh, steely dan uh had the opportunity to interview morcone and the the conversation was fairly wide-ranging as far as his music was concerned and they touched on the fact that uh he started out you know before he was a composer he just started out as a musician he was a trumpet player like his father as a matter of fact and uh so at the end of the interview donald fagan said maestro are there days when you wish you were still playing the trumpet and morcone responds the trumpet was exhausting. I've always wanted to compose. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you have it. Composing is easy. The trumpet is hard. Uh, <laughs> you can find us at battleshipretention.com. Uh, this week on the website, uh, there's a bunch of reviews from, from Scott and from myself from uh, this year's AFI Fest. Uh, you can email us at david at battleshipretention.com or tyler at battleshipretension.com. You can follow me, David, on Twitter at davypretension. You can follow Tyler at tylerpretension. Tyler, do you have anything to plug? this week uh no uh, i'm not really putting out uh, that much stuff but i what do are you have... doing just so you're just sitting on your ass yep that's all i'm doing uh but uh no i but you can uh, check out more than one lesson uh, i did record a, a couple episodes and one thing that i will say is that uh there were some itunes issues with the more than one lesson feed a few weeks ago and i discovered oh, no. that and even though i got it fixed i think uh, if you are a more discovered than one lesson what, fan, gremlins gremlins in the feed well, that's uh, that's more the letterboxed issue, uh, you know, if, if letterbox ever shuts <laughs> right. down. But um, I forgot about that. But the uh, but what I discovered is that, like, if if somebody subscribed, it doesn't matter that I fixed the feed. You need to unsubscribe and then resubscribe. Uh, so there are probably a couple episodes uh, that I've put out that you've missed uh, specifically about um, words on bathroom walls and um, infidel. So you can check those out at uh, more than one lesson dot com. Uh, West, where uh, can people find you should you want them to? Uh, you can find me on Twitter still at uh, Dr. West Anthony. And uh, I deleted my Facebook account. Uh, I think I'm on call. Instagram somewhere, but uh, I haven't looked at Instagram in a long time. So 
that's that's pretty much it it makes it's look it's not my place to guilt you into doing anything but it still makes me very sad that uh the musical notation is not going on it was uh, it was something that worked its way into my curriculum when i was uh talking to my students and now that it's not available anymore i can't uh, direct them that way so oh well you know, thanks, maybe, but, uh, maybe you can bring it back up I, don't and know. I think you can I, still find those episodes at battleshippretension.com, right? Are they? I don't. Uh, I, oh, I clicked the, on one because I was feeling. Oh, I, no. I felt like clicking on. No, there. It's not there anymore. Yeah, it's it's funny how people like to say, "Oh, once you put something on the internet, it's there forever." No, it isn't. It's there as long as somebody can afford to pay for the server. Yeah, yeah. Ah. And um, after you know, because the whole thing, you know, it, it stopped. I two years ago, actually, two years ago this Friday, uh, I had to go into the hospital for a uh, uh, pulmonary embolism with a side mm. order of pneumonia smothered in gravy texas style <laughs> and uh i'm gonna be paying those medical bills for a long while i'm afraid i'm sorry oh, for that but i'm glad you're you're okay yes yep. yes so far so good all right well thank you so much for being here west thank, thank you, you again for having me thank you to ennio morricone for all of the great music over the years thank you at home for listening we'll get you next time bye bye This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 